Good morning. Uh, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. It's good to be here, and it's good to be here with my whole family. Presently is my newest member, Sophie, so we've been grateful for the prayers and the care that we've been shown by all of you as we've been awaiting our daughter who is here. This morning, as we look at Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15, our main focus will be on the last two verses, verses 14 and 15. However, for proper context, we'll have to build and lead into those things by looking at what precedes them. Because our question this morning is not, why does Jesus talk about forgiveness? Our question is, in this section, on prayer, why does he emphasize forgiveness in this way? Why is it only that fifth petition, forgive us as we forgive our debtors, that Jesus elaborates on immediately after? Why is it only this? And why is that so paramount? Why is forgiving so paramount to our prayer life? What's the worst true thing you've ever been called? Maybe you lied and you got caught in a liar and someone said, Joel. Well, they didn't call you Joel, but they said, you're a liar. Or you're a phony. You're just faking it. You're pretending. Or you fraud. Or you meanie. Or, and this takes me deep back to my high school days, you're a poser. And if you weren't in high school or middle school in the late 90s or early 2000s, a poser is somebody who pretends to be one thing, but secretly they're not really that thing. Um, it's that idea of, you tricked me. You said you were the biggest Beatles fan of all time, but you haven't even listened to the White Album. It's faking. You're a poser. So let's talk about being a poser for a moment. It's not the easiest thing in the world to do. It requires a little bit of diligence. You have to actually act and learn and, and get, get the rhythms and, and the reasons behind what you're talking about. Because we all have artificial moments. If you don't believe me, watch someone whose job it is to answer the phone. When I was in Texas, I saw and heard it all. The phone rings. One person's voice gets higher as they answer. Someone else, their voice gets lower. Some people, they lose their accents. Other people gain accents. The phone rings and our artificial acting begins. But being a proper poser requires diligence. You can't just say, I'm a big Beatles fan. You've got to be able to name the band members. You need to be able to sing the lyrics of a couple songs. You need to be able to jump in on those divisive conversations and present original information. By the way, did you know that Ringo wasn't the original drummer. But maybe worse than being a poser is being a hypocrite. We're going to hear that word today in the, in the, in the reading of our text. We're going to see this idea of a hypocrite. It's a, it's a theater term. It's a theater word. It comes from this idea that when you're acting, you've got to put something on your face so they can see. If you're happy, you have the smiling mask. Or when you're sad, you have the frowning or the, the downturned mouth. And when Jesus is talking about hypocrites in Matthew 6, this is what he's getting at. 
people who are bent on performing so that others around them believe they are something else. And perhaps even more key, it's not just that they are deceivers, but as one put it, they are disastrously self-deceived. It's the actor who gets off the stage, gets into the cab, drives home, tucks in his kids for bed, and he still believes he's King George. As one commentator puts it, a hypocrite cannot see beyond the applause for themselves from their peers. So Jesus' Sermon on the Mount demands that we live counter to culture. One author calls the Sermon on the Mount the Kingdom Manifesto. It's the marching orders, the beat of a different drum. And as Jesus has already been addressing our heart sins, our heart adultery and murder, he presses on to talk about our heart religion sin. And he uses three areas of practiced righteousness. Almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. And maybe a controlling verse would be this. 6.1, Matthew 6.1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. The concern of our passage this morning is sincerity. In worship, in giving, in prayer, and in fasting. So, Jesus objects to these ideas of acting as you worship. Brothers and sisters, there are a lot of places where we are hypocrites, but there is one place where we should most certainly not be. For the sake of our prayers and for the sake of our being forgiven, we cannot be hypocrites in prayer. Join me as we read Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15. And here is Jesus tells us how to avoid hypocrisy in prayer. And when you pray... You must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For if your Father knows what you need before you ask Him, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others of their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much that you care so much about the aspects of our life, that you, you've brought them to our attention through your word. 
And I pray even especially today as we look around and see a world that is so different and so opposite of what we see in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. It's so different. I'm grateful that you've shown us a key way that we can show the world your love, but also a key way that we can pray effectively. Father, guide us and help us to be unhypocritical prayers. Help us to be those who don't put on an act when we talk to you, but that we sincerely come before your throne with a desire to meet you. Guide us as we look into this passage deeper and thank you for your most perfect part of this service, your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So to answer our question about forgiveness in the context of the Lord's Prayer, we first need to look briefly at Jesus' bad examples. And he gives us two bad examples before providing us with a third proper example of prayer. So what are those two bad examples? There's the hypocritical prayer, and then there's this babbling pagan prayer. And so let's address the hypocritical one first. As mentioned earlier, a hypocrite is it's an actor. It's someone putting on a mask to show something about themselves that's not true. It's that when they pray, they, it appears that their soul is carrying upward, but meanwhile their eyes are glancing back down at themselves. It's a prayerful navel-gazing. And it's crucial to recognize that the problem is internal. It's not that standing to pray is bad. We're told in Scripture to stand and pray. And it's not that praying in public is bad. It is a good thing to pray corporately together and to pray in public. We've done it today, and it's been a blessing, and it's edifying. What's wrong in Matthew 6 is that this is an internal heart issue. It's not what they're doing. It's that the hypocrite is looking somewhere other than God while he does it. Consider the actions taken in verse 5. Look with me. It says they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. And again, there's nothing wrong with praying at the synagogue. That is where you pray. What's interesting is this mention of the street corners alongside it. And perhaps the best way to understand it is this. If the synagogue was the usual place of prayer, the street corner was where the crowd might have gathered on the way home or on the way there for business and to talk. And perhaps that hour of prayer occurred while a most pious man was on his way to the synagogue. What's a man to do? The hypocrite's solution is simple. Here on this corner where I have an audience who is going to see me, I'm going to stand and I'm going to pray. And maybe this morning you'll catch a wild hair of the hypocrite and decide that it would be better served at our closing prayer for you to walk outside, cross the street, invade someone's brunch, and just announce that you are going to pray as you are so holy. As Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it, the hypocrite is anxious to give the impression that he is devout. He cannot wait until he gets to the temple to pray, and then even when he gets there, where does he head? To that prominent position to be seen by others. So what is Jesus' solution for us? 
He asks us to pray in the closet, to go in secret. But again, this isn't just a physical change that magically, by a new location, changes our prayer life. The design and the desire of the prayer closet is that you would have a change of heart while you're in there, that you are seeking to not be seen by men when you pray. And I think these temptations are very real for us. Do you ever do this? Do you ever pray aware that you have an audience and you change things up a little bit? Perhaps around the dinner table while you're praying, you're very sincere. When it's just your family, you you do a wonderful job at praying as you always do. But then guests come over and we start talking in King James English. Suddenly, dad is a prophet. People are looking. He knows it. When is he going to land that plane? What on earth is going on with him? Or do you carry that arrogance into the prayer closet with you? Do you ever find yourself praying in secret and thinking, I wonder if anybody else knows that I'm doing this right now. I wish that my wife would walk in and see me praying behind the bed so she would know how holy I am. Suddenly, here I am praying on the floor and I'm only thinking about myself. The prayer closet is not a solution to this. The solution is to think about God when you're praying to him and not to be concerned with who is or isn't looking at you or pretending to pray just so you can say you went in and you went into that prayer closet. So Jesus demands that we don't pray like the hypocrite. We must not put on our prayer masks and be pray actors. We must not pray and pretend to ascend to heaven as we simply look at our own self-perceived holiness. That is self-deception. Jesus' second example is the prayers of the babbler. They babble in their prayer. Look at verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. That's the use of meaningless repetitions. And this meaningless repetition is a bit of a pagan idea. In fact, One of the greatest illustrations for the babbling prayer we heard already this morning. It's when the prophets of Baal are trying desperately to get their God to hear them. It says, from morning to noon, they called out to him. They danced and they leapt around the altar, but no answer. So They continued and they started shouting and they began their ritual cutting and lancing of themselves. Now they're shouting and bleeding everywhere and still no answer. And then they go until evening. Still no answer. Now obviously the pagan problem is that Baal is no god. But the other problem is that this ritualistic organization of words is not sincere. It's a repeated effort that has zero power. Those repeated words, those lancings, those cuttings, those dancings, those shoutings, they don't do anything. They're piled up for no reason. And so while the hypocrite maybe is thinking about himself, the babbler is misunderstanding God, and he sees him maybe as this reluctant deity you've got to poke and prod and wake up and get his attention so that he'll do your bidding or he'll do my bidding. Unfortunately, 
This is not an exclusively pagan problem. It's, as Matthew Henry puts it, the vain repetition that goes alongside the vain glory. It's the toolkit that's in, it's the tool that's in the hypocrite's tool belt, right? And we see this because the Pharisees in Mark 12, verse 40, are identified as heaping up empty words. And this isn't attractive in our daily life. I do this to my wife all the time. I've, we've got a graveyard of dead horses that I'm just constantly digging up and just beating them. It's as though I think that if I phrase it and then rephrase it and then phrase it again and maybe rephrase it one more time, that she'll be convinced that I'm right. It's nauseating. So how much worse when we approach God that way? When we say, God, maybe you didn't quite understand what I was saying. Let me rephrase it and then rephrase it again. And let me just paint this brand new picture for you because I think when you finally get what I'm trying to say, because clearly, God, you don't know, you'll agree with me. My way is better. It's like we're writing a paper to God and we need to have a thousand words, but we've only got about 500. And so we're really looking for that A. So we start changing sentences. I came home to eat becomes... I return to my living facilities in order to have sustenance. And we think that that will do the trick with God. It's superstition is ultimately what it is. And maybe a close-to-home example would be that we find this temptation to stay up all night praying because our heroes of the faith stayed up all night praying. That's a wonderful thing to do to stay up all night and to pray with God. If you are entering that time because of necessity and to be with God, stay up all night and pray. But if you're doing it because it worked for George Mueller, that's not the right reason. If you're doing it because it seemed to work for David Brainerd, that's not the right reason. If you pull an all-nighter and you're looking at your watch instead of God, it's superstition. You're just going through the motions. As Spurgeon says, it's not the length, but the depth of our prayers that matters. And so both of these examples are contrary to the Lord's vision of prayer. One is glorifying and putting importance on ourselves. The other is putting an importance on our habits and our words. And let's be honest. Do we do this? Do we do this often? Do we just play act through the prayers and assume that they're going to have some function in our lives because we went through the motions? Brothers and sisters, even this morning, do you ever move through the prayers and just say the words thinking that that's what's needed to be done? Do you find yourselves thinking of someone else's sin during our silent prayer of confession? Students, do you think about School tomorrow? Are you worried about what's coming down the pipe there? Seminary students, are you thinking about that monster reading list for church history? Professors, are you worried about having to grade all those monster digests from church history? Or parents, on Sunday, are you dreading school on Monday for a completely different reason than your children think? And children, when you come to church, do you go through the motions? Do you pray with us? 
we can deceive ourselves and think that our motions of prayer mean something, that they get this job done, and that just because we did all the right things and said all the right words, that God is happy with us. But the danger is that you're being a hypocrite when you do those things because you're thinking that you're better off than what you're asking for and that you can mechanically get through this and it's self-deception. And so Jesus gives us this better way to pray. Look at verse 9. This is the Lord's Prayer, the model. And when you pray then, pray like this. It's contrasted over and against this hypocritical pagan prayer. It's a move from vainglory and vain repetition to God's glory and sincerity. And based on what we've already looked at, however, we need to be aware that you can, in fact, pray the Lord's Prayer hypocritically. It's possible to think of this as just ritualistic words that we repeat, and suddenly we say, oh, I said the Lord's Prayer, I've done a good prayer, I'm done. But we have to be honest and look away from that mechanical and hypocritical reciting of this prayer. And as Lord Martin Lloyd-Jones again says, our prayer is not genuine. It is not true. It is of no avail unless we find that there is forgiveness in our hearts. So, how does forgiveness help us? First, Forgiveness protects us from hypocrisy. It cultivates a heart of humility. Asking for forgiveness means that we're dependent on God. We really need God to forgive us. We genuinely understand that I'm not the man when I'm praying and asking for forgiveness. When I truly need forgiveness, I will not boast of myself in my prayers. And when I forgive others, that amplifies my own humility. Because... We forgive because we've been forgiven. We are able to forgive because our perspective has been shifted. We've been able to see clearly because of Christ. And we recognize that nothing that I have done to someone else or that someone else has done to me can even compare to what we have done to God. So when we say these words, we see that we must genuinely confess, genuinely ask for forgiveness, and genuinely communicate with God and not just pile up words because we're in need. A second reason that forgiveness is powerful here is because there is this theme that runs through the entirety of Matthew. If this is the kingdom manifesto in, verse, in chapters 5 through 7, we see that there's this different order for Christians to be forgiving, to be looking towards forgiveness, to respond to suffering differently, to respond to wrongdoing differently. Christ's followers are to be different from an arrogant world. We need to be seen forgiving those who wrong us. And those themes of forgiveness that are all the way through Matthew find themselves in this Lord's Prayer. So let's look through some of the elements of the prayer and consider this call to forgive. And while not every element of the Lord's Prayer is about forgiveness, I think we'll see that many of these elements are dependent on it. Look at verse 9. How does the prayer begin? Our Father. Certainly we should recognize that someone who does not call God Father can pray this. To call God Father, you must be one of His children. And to be one of His children, you must be forgiven. But consider the words in the Beatitudes. Matthew 5, 9 reads, 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Our identity and sonship is wrapped up in being peacemakers. It's that we resolve to seek hidden tensions and to go after forgiveness. And later in chapter 5, God says, love your enemies so that you may be children of God. Or Paul, he encourages us in Ephesians 4.32 to forgive. Why? So that we may be imitators of God as his beloved children. That we call God Father demands that we forgive and are forgiven. But there's more. That word, our, it's doing double duty here. Because when we are praying, our Father, everything we're praying in that prayer, we're praying for ourselves and for our brothers and sisters. It's the act of praying for forgiveness as we do it corporately. I'm wanting God to forgive my brothers and sisters. And we can't pray that way for our brothers and sisters if we don't love them. And to love them, we forgive them. And so with an upward focus, we shift and we say, hallowed be thy name, God. And your kingdom come. Your will be done. And that will is for the believer to be a forgiver, to suffer injustice as Christ did, and to overcome the world. And then when we get to our fifth petition, where we actually see forgiveness in the text, What are these debts? Maybe we can try and get off of this and think that this is about some financial issue, but it's not. It's a moral debt to God and a service debt to God. And when we break those, we are needing to be forgiven of those. And we see this both in Jesus' elaboration in verses 14 and 15 and in the parallel in Luke. These are trespasses and their sins. And that leads us to a reality. How can you possibly ask for forgiveness from God if you're unwilling to forgive your brother. This is hypocrisy. It's putting on the mask of the forgiven and saying, I belong to God. I recognize God's great mercy. I recognize that he is one who forgives. But then being completely blind to your own phony and fakeness. And while there are a whole a lot of issues in the world that might tempt us, I do pray that we would be led away from the temptation to not forgive our brothers. Because as we look at verses 14 and 15, a few things are certain. First, our well-being depends on it. It is good to forgive, and it's good to be forgiven. Did you know when you don't forgive, that the people you don't forgive, they live rent-free right up here. They just live in your head and they, you hear their words, they've become a part of you. It's just, it's going to fester. It's going to begin to rot. And it becomes poison, revenge. It attacks your soul and it rots your heart. And it ruins your days. And we see this. Just look outside. Everyone seeking revenge. But what would the world look like with forgiveness? Much of this poison that's just consuming us would go away. And forgiveness is the only means to quench that fire 
and to expel that poison. Jesus takes this so seriously that he tells us in Matthew 5, 24 that we're to just run from the altar and reconcile with a brother. And so it's worth asking, is there someone that you need to forgive? Run to that person. A second thing we notice, our prayer life depends on forgiveness. The Apostle Peter, if you look at the front of your bulletin, he is aware that to be self-controlled and sober-minded is tied to our prayers. These attitudes lead to prayers. And just one chapter earlier, he says, if you don't treat your wife right, it's going to affect your prayer life. Or Proverbs 15.29, also on the front. The Lord, he is far from the wicked but he hears the righteous. Or 1 Timothy 2.8, Paul commands men to lift each other in prayer without wrath and without division. And here, in the Lord's Prayer, without forgiveness, this becomes either a vain boasting of self, some ritualistic words we're just plastering onto our mouths to think it does something, Without forgiving others, the Lord's Prayer is merely saying and not doing, and it becomes the exact hypocrisy that he warned of early in this chapter. Finally, our, our forgiveness depends on it. And now this is not a plea of merit where we are like earning our forgiveness. It's a plea of grace. But we cannot expect to be forgiven if we do not forgive. It's a necessity because it's a necessary fruit of being forgiven. It's an element that leads to our assurance. Calvin calls it the impression of Christ's seal to ratify confidence in our own forgiveness. And so we've got a dilemma. We're awful at forgiving. You and I, of our own righteousness, we're really bad at it. We don't forgive. In fact, it's unnatural for fallen humanity to do any sort of forgiveness. It's completely counter to the way that we are. But the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 105, which we read earlier, which you can see again on page 5, it reads this, because by His grace we are enabled from the heart to forgive others. The gospel is that we deserve wrath. We deserve to be punished. But we've been forgiven by God. Because there's no, there's no better forgiver anywhere in the universe than Christ Jesus. He's the one who was punished for our sins. He was without flaw. If there was anyone who ever had a right to not forgive, it was him. And because of him, we are empowered to forgive. So Jesus commands, you must forgive. In a world of unforgiven, unforgivers, you must be the opposite. You must be forgiven forgivers. Briefly, I want us to just think about what it looks like to be a forgiver. What does forgiveness for other people actually look like? Because it can't be fake. It has to be sincere. We can't say one thing and then do another. 
And it also can't be a forgiveness of fear where I say, I don't really want to deal with my loved one's rough edges and their sin, so I'm just going to forgive them so I can ignore it. Overlooking destructive sin, and this is important, overlooking destructive sin is not the same as forgiveness. But when we forgive, how can we do it? There are four super easy promises of forgiveness that I'm going to give to you. And actually, if you go in the hallway, you can find these peacemaking principles. They're right here. And they, they're on the back, and it's just so easy to see. And I, I would advise you, write them on something. Keep them in a card in your wallet. I don't know. As Edwards would say, stamp them on your eyeballs. Let it be known that when you need to forgive somebody, there's a good way to do it. So we'll briefly go over these four. First, your offense. I will not think about it, or dwell on it. God forgives our sins and he remembers our iniquities no more. And that's what we're called to do. Now this doesn't mean that if I've got a friend who has a predisposition for alcoholism that I invite him to a wine tasting. It's not saying that I overlook someone's struggles, but it's saying that when my friend sins against me and I forgive him, when I think of him, I do not think of that sin. I will not think about it and dwell on it. Second, I will not talk to others about it. When you forgive someone, your job is not then to go out and air their dirty laundry. Matthew 18 asks us to rejoice when a brother or sister repents, not to gossip. Third, I will not bring up this offense and use it against you later. Forgiving someone is not grabbing that misdeed, putting it in your quiver, so when you get into an argument later, you can pierce their heart. Forgiveness says, I will not use this against you. And fourth, I will not let it come between us and hinder our personal relationship. Personal is important. Sometimes there are consequences to our actions. In fact, in our story this morning from uh, Elijah, there were consequences for the prophets of Baal, they had serious consequences. But the personal relationship we have with others, as Psalm 108 tells us, is that we will not treat them as those sins that we've forgiven them of. We will not let it come between our personal relationship. Maybe there's some accountability issues that need to pop up, but our relationship will not be affected. So the four together are, I will not think about it. I will not speak to others about it. I will not bring it up against you and I won't let it come between us. Because ultimately, that's what we want others to do for us. And that's what we've had God do for us through Jesus Christ. Humility, as J.C. Ryle puts it, is the first letter of the Christian alphabet. So brothers and sisters, if you are forgiven, you must forgive. If you do not forgive, your Father will not forgive you. And not only that, your prayer, the very air that a Christian breathes, will be hindered by our lack of forgiveness because you cannot sincerely pray unless you sincerely forgive. Children, maybe your brother or sister this week is going to hurt you. Maybe at school, someone's going to hurt you, a friend. Maybe a not friend is going to hurt you. And sometimes when you're hurting, it feels like the best thing to do is 
hurt someone else. But your parents, they've forgiven you for a lot. And God has forgiven you more. So be forgivers. Young Christians, this world is especially tempting to make us not forgive. It feels like every headline, every report is just this opportunity for us to put on our battle gear and to fight and to get on the internet and let everybody know what we think about everything else. But be slow to that. Calm your hearts. Forgive. There is a battle. It belongs to the Lord. We are to forgive. My older brothers and sisters, you know that it is a marathon and not a sprint. And that the more you're reproached in life, you've built up so much of it, I'm sure, and it would be easy to hear that lie that you have the opportunity to not forgive. It's okay not to forgive. You've forgiven a lot, but that is a lie. As we run this race, and as you have run it, and are a model for younger Christians, forgive. Encourage others to forgive. And if there is one here who does not know Christ, who does not call upon the name of the Lord, the poison of revenge will take its place in your heart. It will fester, and it will rot, and it will ruin you. Call upon Jesus to be forgiven and to be a forgiver. Brothers and sisters, the answer is simple. If you want to pray right, if you want to pray not like a hypocrite, one thing that you have to get under control is that you must forgive. But like I said, we're not really that great at it, are we? So thanks be to God that we have a high priest who forever loves to intercede for us in heaven. That we have a spirit who when we don't know how to pray, he groans for us. And that we have a God, a Father, who knows what we need and doesn't need to be reminded and he gives good gifts. Trust in the Lord and walk as forgiven forgivers. Let's pray. Father, I'm so grateful that you have forgiven, even me. As I thought about forgiveness, I thought about how much I don't do it and how much I ask for it. Help us to see that you are good, O oh God, and that because you loved us, you sent your Son to die on the cross for our sins, that we might be forgiven, and that you washed away all of those spots, all of those blots, all of those marks. And you did it, not just so that we could sit in our squalor, but so that we could reflect you. Lord, help our prayers. And as we said in the confessions this morning, enable us to forgive through the majesty of your spirit and your forgiveness. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for the sake of his kingdom. Amen.